Welcome to the School Choice Voice, where education reformers connect, collaborate, and engage in discourse around the changing landscape of public schools, all in an effort to support better opportunities for kids. I'm your host, Matt Plain, a teacher turned attorney and partner at the law firm Barton Gilman, serving public schools of various shapes and sizes from Massachusetts down to Maryland. We're honored to have with us today Nina Reese, the intrepid president and chief executive officer of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, the leading national nonprofit organization committed to advancing the charter school movement. Good morning, Nina. How are you today? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us. Nina, I'm sure there's no shortage of public school initiatives to advance down there in Washington, and we'd love to talk about that. But before we get into it, can we learn a little bit more about you? Absolutely. I don't know where to start. I um, have been a supporter of school choice for quite some time. I got my start in Washington, D.C. in the 90s, uh, back when uh, the first charter law had passed Minnesota uh, for the first time. But in the 90s, we didn't have a lot of options. So my entry point into this field was really through a public interest law firm that litigated on behalf of low-income families defending their right to access a better school. And by getting to know these families and really um, falling in love with their stories uh, that I started to, you know, gain the the bug and uh, started to fight for parental choice. Uh, Initially, I was mostly focused on access to private schools, but it wasn't until I was at the U.S. Department of Education in the Bush administration running the Office of Innovation and Improvement that I discovered that in most of these places where we were trying to pass private school choice options, not many private schools were interested in serving the needs of the families we were we wanted to uh, liberate. And in many instances, the reason these private schools were not interested is because of the, all the rules and regulations that they thought would follow the students to their schools, and not least of which was just the fact that in a lot of these schools, they don't just accept you based on a lottery. Um, they accept you based on taking an admission test, interviewing you and all those things. So that's how I started to really appreciate the charter school movement. I felt that it was a um, great way both to meet the needs of low-income families in particular, but also to make sure that new schools were being open in the communities where these families live. Uh, And the other thing that I have um, uh, discovered over time is that the variety and innovation coming out of the charter sector is far superior to anything I've seen in the private sector, certainly in the city that I live, Washington, D.C. So the people who are attracted to the charter school movement are in it because they're trying to prove the impossible. Uh, They're trying to test new ideas, uh, and they are doing some really great and innovative things all over the country. But to this day, I don't know of anything else in the education space that's been able to close the achievement gap, innovate, and have such huge wait lists in terms of demonstrating demand. So uh, I'm a fan and I'm truly honored every day to wake up and work in an organization whose mission is so closely tied to everything that I've done in my life and something that truly makes a difference uh, in the lives of the people that we are trying to serve. 
That's cool. Improving the impossible. I love that statement. And you mentioned getting your start in education policy in Washington, D.C., where you work now and where you live. Uh, you're not from Washington, D.C. originally, though, right? No, I was born and raised in Iran, um, moved to the U.S. in 1983 after the revolution. And uh, after the revolution and after the hostage crisis, uh, we moved of all places to a small town called Blacksburg in Southwest Virginia. I was um, one of a handful of immigrants in that school. And um, it was, you know, as excited as I was to be in the U.S. and to have the freedoms that come with being in the U.S., certainly post-revolutionary Iran, it was a difficult time for a high school student to be in a rural community with just one high school. So another part of my story connects back to that. Um, I you know, moved here with my family, but my father and my brother were here. My, my mom didn't move um, until later. And, um, you know, so the school definitely was one of the best schools in the state of Virginia, and it still is. But in terms of meeting the needs of a student for whom English was not a first language, it wasn't the best place to be. And also, I mean, one of the things that attracts me to the charter school sector is this notion of fit. We talk a lot about academic achievement, but at the end of the day, finding a school that fits your specific and unique needs is um, just as important. So for me, that school was just you know, a standard school that probably met, met the needs of 90% of the students in that region. But for me, it was definitely not a good fit. And I certainly also felt that the people running the school, you know, didn't have a huge degree of appreciation for the different way that I approached my education and my learning. And so because I didn't fit into a standard box, um, they certainly made everything a lot easier for me than it needed to be in order for me to really push myself and thrive academically. And then after that, certainly college was a wake-up call because everything was so much harder and I wasn't well prepared. Uh, but I certainly appreciated being in a large school where I could find my community and friends and where I wasn't certainly the only poor immigrant child. Um, and then after that, I moved to Washington. I just wanted to be, uh, you know, I wanted to get away from Blacksburg for one thing, but I also wanted to, you know, get involved in politics. And I have this story that I tell people about how I had, I didn't have a lot of contacts to get a job. So I literally dropped my resume in every single office on Capitol Hill until I landed a job working for Congressman Porter Goss of Florida at the time. So uh, just also goes to show that certainly in this country, if you set your mind to doing something, you certainly can do that. And in my case, I really wanted to end up at the White House and in an administration. So the fact that I was able to, to do that a few years after is definitely testament to the greatness of this country and the potential that it offers uh, to a lot of immigrants who move here. We really appreciate everything you've done in the education arena. I love your formula for success, get education right in a little bit of hustle. And speaking of hustle, you certainly have it. In fact, I think just recently in March of 2021, just last month, Washingtonian Magazine named you one of Washington's most influential people. That's right? Yes, yes. And if I'm, I believe uh, within the education space, in addition to you, there's only eight others. That's a small group of folks that are influencing education in Washington, D.C. Would you describe, I'm guessing you know most of the folks in that group? 
Um, I do. I mean, it includes the leaders of both teachers unions. And uh, so Randy Weingarten and Becky Pringle are also on that list, amongst others, like Rick Hess at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I know all of them. That, so, But the, the list is short, partially because, for whatever reason, I don't know that when people think about influence in education, they don't necessarily, education doesn't pop up as a topic that is covered. So hopefully next year, they'll be able to identify other individuals since there are uh, a lot of us uh, that are doing this work, both in the K-12 early childhood and higher ed space. So, but, but this was the inaugural edition and they had longer lists for other industries. The education one was only nine people. Well, it making it that much more impressive that you made the list. And don't downplay it. It's a big deal. The National Alliance. So what's the National Alliance doing to support the charter school movement? So we've been around uh, now for 15 years. Um, and our role has evolved over time. But we have stayed committed to three kind of overarching things that we do consistently. First is making sure that we are growing the number of high quality public charter schools around the country. That's our mission. And we believe that charter schooling can also improve the overall quality of our public school system. Uh, we advocate at the federal level for additional funding to launch charter schools. Most people don't know this, but the federal government has been the largest source of startup dollars for charter schools, funding that is crucial for anyone who is trying to open a school because as you know, you don't get money into the school until you have enough students in seats. So in the first few years, uh, unless you have your own money or you're connected to a charter management organization or a for-profit company, you don't have, you cannot really pay yourself a salary and treat that as a full-time job. And it is very much a full-time job. So those startup dollars have been important. We advocate for them every year. We've been increasing them over time. When I came to the National Alliance about nine years ago, we were getting about $254 million in funding through that program. That number is now at $440 million and dollars that is making a difference every day. The other thing we advocate for is equalizing funding between public and charter schools. We all know that charters only get about 70 cents of every dollar that follows students to traditional schools, which is unfortunate. Most of it is because we don't have access to facilities. And so making sure that at the federal level, at the state level, local level, charters have access to buildings is really important. As I said earlier, this is not just about the academics, it's also about exposing kids to education and settings that open their eyes and give them kind of a sense of hope and aspiration for, for what's possible. So uh, we definitely think that we need to equalize the funding stream, not for the sake of chartering, but because our students are worth no less than students who are attending other schools. We do a lot of work at the state level. We have a model law that we rank states against. Uh, in the hopes of uh, nudging the lawmakers in each state to improve the quality of their laws. Uh, fortunately, we now have 45 states with charter school laws of varying degrees. I would say the top-ranked state, which is Indiana, possibly more of a B-plus state, so we wouldn't even rank the very top state as a state that is getting an A-plus. We also, um, on the legal front, since you're an attorney, we have an alliance of public charter school attorneys, which is going to meet uh, later this week for its spring conference virtually. 
And uh, this group of attorneys is um, kind of our first line of information and defense to some extent. Attorneys can always look around the corner for possible opportunities and threats. So we're fortunate to have a pretty good group of attorneys who we uh, rely on for information. We gather in this community of practice twice a year uh, and with whom we work with to make sure that we're mitigating potential risks that uh, are increasingly popping up in different states. One of the things that is obvious by now is, you know, the our opposition is not just fighting us in the legislature, they're also fighting us in the court of public opinion uh, and in the court of law. So keeping an eye on um, what is happening in different states, making sure that certain cases that could potentially have ramification in other states are not all of a sudden resolved in a certain way that would be damaging is one of the key things our attorneys do. And uh, we also have a legal defense fund. So if folks are interested in our support, we have a process by which they can apply a mortar board that decides or an advisory board that decides whether the case um, is a national case we should be investing in. Uh, And then we serve as partners and legal advisors to uh, those who have either filed or are under uh, the threat of uh, litigation impacting them. So so the legal work is pretty pretty interesting to me since I got my start in this work in a public interest law firm, and I am not an attorney, but I try to play one on TV, so to speak. We also have a data dashboard. I should just highlight this. Um, we have access to all the publicly available information about charter schools, and we're spending we spend a lot of time cleaning the data, looking at the data, trying to understand trends and patterns with an eye towards improving the overall quality of. Uh, what we do at the state level. So that's sort of it in a nutshell. This past year, we just refreshed our strategic plan with a renewed focus on bolstering the faces of the movement, which is something we've always done. Uh, But this time, it's also with an eye towards increasing the exposure of a lot of our schools that are not just high quality schools, but schools that are also hitting that equity scale well. That's great. And the proof's in the pudding. The Biden administration undoubtedly will see all of the good work that charter schools have done for a long time now. Uh, And speaking of a long time now, the charter school movement is celebrating a milestone. Isn't that right? Yes. So we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of the passage of the first charter school law in Minnesota. It passed on June 4th, 30 years ago this year. And you know, because of the pandemic, um, we haven't brought that much attention to this monumental date. But we have a few things planned uh, during National Charter Schools Week, which is the second week of May. Uh, we plan to honor 30 individuals who are under 30 uh, from the charter space, either a student, a teacher, or someone who is investing in charter schools or impacting charter schools in a, in a significant way to really shine a light on the future of chartering. We talk a lot about the past, the accomplishments of the innovators, and we definitely will focus on those pioneers, but our focus is really on the future and where the individuals who are uh, graduating from charter schools are going to take us next. Ultimately, you want these schools to become part of the community and for these families and students to go back to the schools, uh, work in them, support them in, in significant ways. And we've seen a lot of that already, but um, our hope is to bring even more attention to 
uh, the importance of the future generation and shaping where we go next. Speaking of that, what do you see for the next 30 years in the charter school movement? Challenges, hurdles, obstacles, potential successes, what's on the horizon? Gosh, that's a great question. I mean, kind of in the immediate future, one of the things we discovered um, last year is how quickly our school leaders were able to pivot to offering uh, remote learning, uh, how quickly they were able to respond to the needs of families. And as a result, more uh, individuals are now attending charter schools. The enrollment rates in many states has gone up. Uh, We don't know if it's going to continue staying high, but we have seen definitely an uptick in demand for what we offer. I think one thing that COVID has proven is the importance of choice and the fact that families just now are a little bit more aware of the limitations of big centralized bureaucracies in pivoting and offering services when a crisis strikes. Usually, if you are running something in a centralized way, you should be able to do things a lot faster and more effectively, right? But in this case, a lot of these centralized systems, I live in Fairfax County, for instance, not only were they not able to pivot to online learning quickly, but their pivot was disastrous. They stayed closed until very recently. And so that's aggravated a lot of people, awakened them to the need for more options. In many instances, these families also gathered to come up with options on their own by hiring a teacher and creating classrooms in their basements. So it has definitely awakened people's eyes towards options, having more options, and questioning a lot of the practices potentially in our public school system. Now, how how long this will last remains to be seen. I think in the next 30 years, my hope is that our system of schooling, whether it's in a public or charter or whatever system, becomes more centralized to meet the needs of families. And this notion of being able to get an education anytime, anywhere becomes more part of the fabric of our public school systems is something that a lot of people in the technology sector have been talking about in terms of the fact that you don't have to have the students in their seats for a certain number of hours and days in the year before you give them the credentials to move to the next grade. If they're ready, if they can pass the test, you should be able to move them along. So I feel like those notions are probably a little bit more ripe for legislatures to consider the notion of thinking about infrastructure as not just the school building, but also a laptop and internet connectivity is something that COVID definitely uh, has helped us to talk more about, and I think it's going to remain in place. So I hope that the future will be more customized to fit the needs of families in a more efficient way with an eye towards making sure that the student is learning and learning the things they need in order to succeed in life, not necessarily to go to a particular institution in order to get a degree that may or may not lead to a job. We, we all know those stories as well. So the customization uh, hopefully will be the lesson out of COVID that will catapult us into the future. And certainly I think charters uh, have already played a role in it because so many of them rose to the occasion by both offering remote learning in some instances like Success Academy, Uncommon Schools, Achievement First, Uh, They also made their content available through open source for anyone who wanted to access it um, immediately. So to me, these are all things that we're very proud of and things that could be leveraged 
for us to continue kind of the collaborative process we need to have in order for education as a whole to thrive. Yeah, it sounds like from what you've described, some of these schools have served as vanguards and laboratories to influence education broadly across the country. And it sounds like from what you've described also, uh, a charter school has, charter schools generally have been able to pivot uh, more easily and effectively, evolve more efficiently. They're more nimble. What are the general characteristics of a charter school that would differentiate it from your garden variety traditional public school? Um, look, so every charter law is different. I live in Virginia, next door to Maryland. They both have very weak laws for very different reasons. I wanted to just put that out there because people think of chartering as this one monolithic thing, but depending on the law and the, on the books, depending on the climate in which they grow, every charter school is different from the other. Uh, but by and large, they're freed from certain rules and regulations. And in most cases, it is being free to hire teachers who are highly qualified, not necessarily certified a certain way, making sure you can expand the school day and the school year, and making sure you're giving those teachers who are doing well additional bonuses and incentives to stay in the system. Uh, so the, most of these charter schools don't have teacher union bargaining contracts, and that differentiates them in terms of giving the principal more autonomy to make adjustments in real time. Uh, the lack of connection to a centralized bureaucracy, as I said earlier, is a huge asset because you have control uh, at the school site to contract with whoever you want to contract with, whether it's for paper services, janitorial services. So from a management standpoint, you have a lot of freedom to move dollars around and make sure whatever you're doing is fitting the needs of your school without having to check with someone else. So the bureaucracy is not hovering over you on a daily basis. But as I said earlier, I think the key distinguishing factor for us is also just the individuals who enter the space. The quality of authorizing has improved dramatically over time. I think one of the reasons why our sector is doing so much better academically on test scores and graduation rates has a lot to do with the fact that in states like Texas, you now um, have mechanisms that very quickly give you the opportunity to scale your model if you're running a high-performing high school. Uh, they've also done a very good job of closing the poor-performing schools in an effective way. Uh, I would also say that that's not the only way schools close. If a school is not attracting families or if you have enough options within the system, those schools that are not knocking it out of the park are not going to attract a lot of students. That's been the case in Arizona. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's just the, the formula of giving principles, site autonomy, the authority to innovate, giving teachers the freedom to come up with new ways of teaching and changing the setup of their classroom without losing sight of the fact that at the end of the day, you, there is a standardized test that you have to take for your school to stay open. I think that autonomy and flexibility combined with accountability from parents and from an authorizer has been a winning formula. That's great. And another thing you said struck me is uh, customization. Not every charter school is going to look the same, even within a state, let alone across jurisdictions or across states, right? Exactly. Nina, you've had a very successful career in education policy and advocacy. If you did it all over again, would you change anything? Absolutely not. I, I, you know, this past year has given all of us a lot of time to think about 
our lives. And I, and for me, um, yeah, no, there's not, not a single thing I would change, but I do wish that I was able to have an even greater impact uh, in the different roles that I've had, uh, certainly in government where you have the authority to pull levers, to do things quickly. But the other thing we've learned over time with chartering in particular is the importance of bringing people along and not doing things so quickly without really explaining your processes. I, I think in the process of growth, um, unfortunately, in some of our communities, we've lost sight of other people who should be natural allies, uh, but who, for whatever reason, don't know enough about charter schools, haven't been invited to meet with us. And as a result, you know, the establishment and the other side is leveraging them in ways that are not helpful. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the one thing I would change with everything that I've done is just the importance of having strong communication strategies attached to your work and making sure that the messengers are always the recipients. I, I knew that from the beginning of my career, having worked at the public interest law firm and understanding the importance of the human interest stories and selling your, your cause. Um, but increasingly, I think it's even more important for us to make sure that parents and students are the voices and the faces of the sector and that they have a say in a lot of the decision-making that takes place. That's great. And you've had such an impact on education. Did you get a piece of advice along the way that kept you driven, helped you stay motivated, kept your eyes on the prize? Gosh, there's so many. Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of Howard Fuller's. Um, he, you know, and he was the superintendent of public schools in Milwaukee when I first met him, and I've stayed in touch with him over time. I don't, I don't know that there's been a single advice from him, but I, I do think the focus on children and making sure that you are not losing sight of your ultimate clients as those students is important. So I guess the key lesson has been don't get distracted with the haters and the noise around you. Uh, focus on the task at hand. Um, the other advice I also received early in my career as someone who's in DC was the importance of sticking to a subject matter that I could uh, dig my heel into and really understand well, because this area is filled with generalists uh, and those who have staying power are those who specialize in something and become really good at understanding it uh, because ultimately whoever you're trying to influence is covering so many different things and they are those generalists. They, they're always looking for specialists to tell them how to do specific things. So in that respect, uh, my focus on choice and charter schools comes from that advice that don't get too distracted with being a generalist or spreading yourself too thin across um, a subject matter. And is that the advice you'd pass along to somebody looking to enter the education reform movement and have a widespread impact on public school education? I mean, it depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, in my case, because I was living in DC and I was trying to make my mark in DC, this advice, which came from Jim Pinkerton, who was a speechwriter to President Bush Sr., resonated with me and has served me well. In the education space, though, depending, again, if you're trying to run a school or whatnot, your advice is going to be different. I would say for most young people entering the space, the advice I give them is to find something that they're truly passionate about, um, because if you have the passion, then the other 
things that happen around you won't matter as much. And so whether, you know, you don't necessarily like your peers that much or the manager is not being fair to you and all that, it's not going to matter as much if you're working on something that you really believe in. If you don't believe in it, all these other things, I mean, the workplace is comprised of individuals on any given day, something is going to bother you. Uh, So you're never going to find true reward in the work if what you're working on is not something that is special to you in a meaningful way. So so I think that that advice is what I give to anyone, regardless of the space that they want to enter, but education in particular. Cool. Now, if folks want to learn more about the National Alliance, they want to learn more about Nina Reese and the great work all you find folks have been doing, where do they go? Where do they find more information about you? Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, so our website, publiccharters.org, uh, is where you go to, to find information about all of our work, you know, links to the people who work in our organization uh, and whatnot. Uh, I also encourage people to follow me on Twitter at Nina Charters, or if you want to follow the Charter School um, Alliance, it's at Charter Alliance. So it's a little different from the website. And you mentioned the legal conference that's coming up actually in a couple of days. And the National Alliance puts on a national conference for educators as well, right? And that's coming up in June. Uh, yes. So thank you so much for reminding me. Um, so yes, uh, we have an annual conference every year. It is usually in person. It attracts somewhere between 3,500 to 5,000 every year in person, unfortunately, virtually. It's not quite as intimate, but we were able to really make it as intimate as you possibly can last year. And we're going to try that again this year, having learned how to do this well. Um, That conference is on June 20th through the 23rd. uh, And again, it's virtual. So hopefully we'll be able to attract an even larger number of people uh, to our events. Perfect. Well, I certainly look forward to attending. Nina, it has been my great pleasure to have a conversation with you this morning. Thank you so much for your willingness to contribute. And we look forward to future discussions and we look forward to observing the great work of the National Alliance down the road. So thanks for everything you folks do. Thank you so much. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. The School Choice Voice is a podcast series created by Barton Gilman a law firm that supports and advises schools giving better education opportunities to kids, particularly those that have been historically disadvantaged. For more information, including up-to-date client alerts, blog posts, and podcasts covering the many issues affecting schools, please visit our website at bglaw.com or find us on social media by searching Barton Gilman. To join the School Choice Voice virtual community, please look for us on Facebook by searching School Choice Voice.